Back to old habits here at the dive hut as I recount the final stages of the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition, bringing to a close the chapters encompassing the Waddell and Ross Sea parties, kicking off with the 22 unfortunate punters left behind at Elephant Island. Soaked through in their efforts launching and loading the James Caird, the men on Elephant Island turned in and spent the rest of the day in their sleeping bags in whatever shelter they could erect. A day after the Cairdenauts departed, pack ice hemmed Elephant Island in. While, a leader whose quiet bluntness some found easier to deal with than Shackleton's charismatic charm and bombastic bonhomie, brought his charges together to discuss plans for shelter, food, healthcare and, on a bum note, a backup plan in case Shackleton should fail to arrange their rescue. Twenty-two men would strike out the Deceptioner Island in the two cutters in the more settled weather of the Antarctic spring, navigating by dead reckoning. Extremely slim chances of success after a winter spent on the all-seal and penguin diet, but having outlined the contingency, they set themselves to task on more immediate matters. Caves dug into the packed snow lining the landward side of the beach offered some hope of refuge from the weather, but at the relatively low latitude of Elephant Island, body warmth was enough to bring the walls to melting point soaking everything within, and the snow was given up as a source of shelter. On Marston and Green Street's recommendation, the men brought the Dudley Docker and the Stancombe Wills together, overturning the hulls and placing them on low walls of cobble, roofing over the whole structure and making a valance over the stonework with the remaining intact canvas, eventually making a cramped but weatherproof shelter. They called it the Snuggery, hut being far too grand a word for the structure. Blubber, that sole combustible available on Antarctic coasts, served to heat and light the space with the usual attendant sooty problems, in spite of Hurley's best inventive efforts at fashioning efficient burners, and Kerr's work making a flue and chimney. With sleeping bags spread across the ground, on top of the inverted thwarts, and slung in hammocks, the boats provided just enough room for the 22 residents. Wilde followed Shackleton's mode, never stockpiling large caches of food. Early in their stay, as many as a hundred penguins were laid in in a single day, but the slaughter was never wholesale and reached replacement equilibrium some weeks after the James Caird departed. Thomas Ord Lees was again all a flutter about potential shortfalls should the birds or seals depart the beach as the men faced a second winter in the south. Wilde was in a cleft stick, not wanting to freak people out by generating a huge pile of meat that might depress the crew, but also not wanting to freak people out with Audley's pertinent prophecies, and it was the disjunct between his maritime discipline and Audley's Royal Marine background that stood as his second most acute leadership problem during his time ashore at Elephant Island. His most acute leadership problem while ashore at Elephant Island arose when it became obvious that someone was stealing food from the cache. In their day-to-day -day lives, there was no scope to secure or guard the food, so Wilde called another all-hands meeting and read the Riot Act. He pointed out that he had a gun and would use it to kill any man caught putting the safety of the entire party at risk through such thefts, and no one doubted that Wilde would carry it through if push came to shove. Wilde's other leadership touches were less dramatic. Each morning he called in his comrades to lash up and stow, 
the boss may come today. And he applied a strictly rotated seating roster at mealtimes to ensure everyone got at least one meal a week in the warming influence of the blubber stove. Macklin and McElroy were tasked with surgery under the primitive conditions Cape Wild offered, removing teeth from Kerr and Wordy, doing what they could to drain the abscess on Hudson's spine, which began to come good, and eased the delirium Hudson experienced due to the poisonous influence of the infection over his nervous system, and amputating several of Blackborough's toes. Hoping for more sanitary, better lit and better equipped conditions, they held off until mid-June, but with no sign of rescue, they couldn't delay any longer without risking Blackborough dying of the poisons generated by the gangrene developing in the dead tissue left behind by the frostbite. The operation took almost an hour and used up the last of the small supply of chloroform. Any further surgery would require something to bite on and an enthusiasm for tales of hard as nailsness. While everyone was pleased, their youngest crewmate came through the operation safely and showed every sign of cheerfulness when he regained consciousness. The operation reinforced that rescue had not come and did not seem to lie close in the offing. The last of the cereal stocks went in a single big binge, green conjuring a barley pudding with jam. Everyone went to bed on a satisfyingly full stomach, except Lord Lees, who saved much of his portion and fretted that the luxury should have been spread across several days. Toasts to the returning son, the crew of the James Caird and sweethearts and wives were taken with Gut Rot 1916, a concoction of Clark's methylated spirit preserving fluid, sugar and ginger. That no one went blind on the stuff indicates wild threat against anyone caught stealing from the stores was taken seriously, at least on this front. As the days grew shorter, the men spent more and more time in their sleeping bags. Readings from the available library helped pass the time with some semblance of entertainment, though Browning's poetry and Walter Scott's romantic tales of chivalric eras long since past couldn't compete with Marston's Penny Cookbook, recitations from which inspired many happy dreams. Hussey led the party in song each evening his banjo serving the purpose which Shackleton foresaw when he gave it reprieve from the pile at Dump Camp. Food began to run out. Frank Hurley's undimmed enthusiasm for the wondrous play of light over the glacier, recorded in his diary and lyrical prose, didn't alter that limpets were now on the menu. Jokes about cannibalism circulated once more, and Ord Lees lamented in his own diary that many a true word is said in jest. Things were looking pretty damn bleak under the boats. Hurley fashioned some window panes from chronometer cases, and while they let some light in to see and read by, they also let light in to show up the squalor that was previously shrouded in shadows, so they proved something of a mixed boon. A petrol tin served as a gazunder to save the men the trouble of crawling over one another in the dark to a blute outdoors. Wilde's rule ran, that whoever filled the tin to within two inches of its rim had to go outside to empty it. The game became gauging the remaining volume by listening to the sound the tin made as it filled. Bladders were put to the test as men strained to avoid being the unlucky punter to make the foray outside, men holding on in the hope that someone else would break before them. An empty tin was never empty for long. 
As soon as the man who broke his seal and pushed the pissy meniscus past the internal plimsoll line returned with the tin, it was passed rapidly between those whose internal fortitude, or at least internal volume, saw them go the distance. An economy arose among those able to save some of their food from each meal. Fried blubber for sugar lumps, a cake of nut food for ship's biscuits. Ord Lee's diary laments the rates he was paying to gain his favourite morsels, his meticulous record of the trades reminding him of past follies as the rations shortened. Wilde had to put a stop to the bartering when Ord Lee's cornered the market for sugar. The doctors advising that the sailors shouldn't be allowed to forego their carbohydrates at any price. Ord Lee's carefully calculated purchases wrought him little benefit as he found his enterprise nationalised by a socialist government. The culinary exception, Midwinter's Day, brought full bellies and goodwill to all men, but the reprieve from hunger proved short-lived as the nut food and biscuit pudding, the rich true milk beverages and the full-strength hooshes served up to mark the passing of the shortest day, digested, and the usual spare rations resumed. Large congregations of penguins coming ashore were put to death by the efficient expedient of herding them over a cliff and collecting the carcasses from its foot. Occasional windfalls on this front saw a cache of 500 carcasses, butchered of their breasts and thighs but otherwise still full of meaty goodness, discarded into the sea, to Ord Lee's larder-watching distress. All diaries comment on James Wordy's remarkable restraint with his tobacco allowance, the scientist managing to fill his pipe long after his companions smoked their last skerricks. The oft-accounted misery of the nicotine-deprived drove many men to distraction and substitutes were applied, leading Bakewell to try boiling old pipes and using the resulting nicotine-laced water to infuse used tea leaves and senegrass from his finesco with the drug. These were dried and smoked with the solemnity and anticipation due such an important experiment. It proved the dismal failure, though that the project left the snuggery smelling like a prairie fire offered some novelty. Bakewell took the results on the chin with stoicism, though with Wordy occasionally puffing out clouds of fragrant tobacco smoke, even the pipes fully gave away didn't prevent a level of irrational resentment arising against his thrifty self. Holwell, bereft of tobacco since the breakup of the pack ice dumped him in the sea in his sleeping bag, sometimes sat up to watch the dwindling number of smokers work their way through a pipe or a toilet paper rolly late into the evening, hoping to be offered a drag from a dog end. Digression. I really hate the hold that drug takes on people. I could understand if it gave you the self-absorbed high of opiates or the giggling bonhomie of dope, but all I ever see people get from it is a brief respite from withdrawal. Lengthening days and rising temperatures should have brought some solace, but instead they brought a thaw that melted the guano layered beneath the snuggery, the floor becoming an unpleasant quagmire. Bailing out an inverted boat on a beach sounds innocuous, but it proved necessary several times through July as the temperature beneath the boat increased in concert with that outdoors. New layers of shingle helped prevent the guano, centuries deep, from causing health problems. A fine mid-August day saw sleeping bags and ground sheets taken outdoors for airing, and Blackborough, confined to the snuggery since it was built, 
was carried outside to enjoy some rickets-preventing sunshine. Later that week, dense pack ice surrounded the island and moods became dark as the end of August, the month deemed the latest they should expect rescue, approached. Blackborough's foot wasn't healing, the doctors suspecting an infection in the bone. With 22 men and only two cutters to fit them in, Wilde began making preparations for a single boat gambit for Deception Island. Taking only the strongest and most skilled four among them, he intended sailing the Dudley Docker, improved by cannibalising the Stancombe wheels and using whatever wood and nails McNeish hadn't applied to the James Caird, along the leeward shores of the South Shetland Islands in early October. By the end of the 250-mile voyage, they could expect the vanguard of the Norwegian whaling interests to arrive and start establishing themselves for the summer whaling season. No one enjoyed contemplating the plan, representing as it did another dangerous boat journey, this time using third-rate equipment left behind when all the second-best kit headed off in the James Caird, and requiring they acknowledge the loss of their six companions during their attempt to reach South Georgia. Everyone was already thinking Shackleton, Worsley, Crean, Vincent, McCarthy and McNeish must be dead, but the first steps towards putting the contingency plan into action forced them to actually give voice to that dreadful conclusion. On the 30th of August, after a low-tide session collecting limpets, just as Wilde was serving the lunchtime hoosh of boiled seal backbone, Marston, who'd remained outside shelling the mollusks with Hurley, came running to the snuggery, yelling that a ship lay on the horizon. Audley's diary records a rush of men crawling over each other, mugs going everywhere, and the snuggery's door being torn to shreds. Outside, Hurley lit a fire, but the ship was already clearly making a line straight for Cape Wild. Macklin hoisted his Burberry jacket up the makeshift flagpole, but it stuck halfway, giving an impression of a flag at half-mast when observed from the Elcho causing those aboard to speculate that some of the Elephant Island contingent had died during their absence. Hudson and Ord Lees carried Blackborough outside to join the throng, gazing in wonder at the tiny steel tug, where everyone expected a larger, wooden vessel that might stand some chance against sea ice. To further their consternation, the tug raised the Chilean naval ensign in response to Macklin's jacket. The tug anchored up 500 feet from shore and lowered a boat, and in the boat they recognised Shackleton and Crean. Emotionally charged cheers went up from 22 relieved throats, and when the boat came near enough for hailing, the men shouted in unison, All well! Worsley, writing about the moment Shackleton counted all 22 men on the beach through the binoculars from the deck of the Yelcho, noted, he put his glasses back in their case and turned to me, his face showing more emotion than I had ever known it to show before. Crean had joined us, and we were all unable to speak. Shackleton resisted invitations to come ashore and inspect the accommodations. Eager to get his men and the tug clear of the island and the ice, the boat worked hard and fast, transferring the men, the log of the endurance, Hurley's photographic materials, and little else from the beach out to the Elcho. The Chilean sailors stood apart from the survivors, which was at first taken as a measure of deference, 
but was later understood as a perfectly understandable eagerness to remain upwind of the smell of blubber smoke, guano, and accumulated human effluvia. Green, who was only ever excused duty when off his head, was set to task, after washing his hands vigorously for a long time, I hope, cooking for his companions with the wonders available in a properly equipped and stocked galley. The macaroni and cheese he conjured proved too rich for most stomachs, but it was hot and novel, and no one much cared that they couldn't keep it down. It wasn't seal or penguin, and there was more where it came from. Letters from home, collected at South Georgia, and the most recent European newspapers Shackleton could source, caught his men up on what they'd missed since entering the Waddell Sea. The war kicking off as they departed Britain was the source of much speculation in the intervening period, but no one's wildest estimations conjured the reality that hit the crew of the Endurance at the end of their isolation. Not only was the war still being fought, it had caused casualties at a vast scale and of types never seen before in human history, poison gas attacks and unbridled submarine warfare first coming into their own in the two years they were away. Where Shackleton's efforts to organise the rescue from Stanley in the Falklands brought muttered local opprobrium that he should have been away at the war rather than messing about in the south, the arrival of the Yelcho with all hands safe in Punta Arenas drew wild celebrations from people with no vested interest in their survival, including the German contingent of the multinational town. Blackborough went into the town hospital to have his infected feet treated. The Foreign Office encouraged Shackleton to use his popularity to court favour with the governments that aided his efforts, and he responded by sending his men to Santiago, Buenos Aires and Montevideo on their way back to Britain, but gave no thought to returning to Stanley. The brief letter he sent his wife Emily from Punta Arenas encompasses his feelings regarding Britain's response to his emergency. My darling, I have done it. Damn the Admiralty. I wonder who is responsible for their attitude to me. Not a life lost and we have been through hell. Soon I will be home and then I will rest. This is just a line as I have only arrived today and the steamer sails at once. Winston Churchill learnt of the expedition's return while commanding the 6th Battalion of the Royal Scots Fusiliers at Ypres. He wrote to his wife, Fancy that ridiculous Shackleton in his South Pole, in the crash of the world. In episode 56, I noted Winston Churchill as the first sea lord in the lead-up to the First World War, but this was incorrect, the role at that time being held by the Admiral of the Fleet, Louis Alexander Mountbatten, a German prince, which didn't go over well when the war kicked off, but that's beside the point. The first sea lord is a position held by a naval officer, where the position I'd meant to cite Churchill as holding was first lord of the admiralty, the political counterpart to the first sea lord. By 1916, Churchill resigned his position in the government and the attendant attaches, so it can't have been Churchill's disdain for Shackleton that directly caused slow action to send naval resources to his aid. But Churchill's influence carried echoes in every avenue of his life, as did Scott's animosity towards his former colleague, as expressed by his still-living colleagues. In short, don't get between a Brit and their grudge. Aye.
Shackleton telegraphed copy to the Daily Chronicle from Punta Arenas. The first first-hand accounts of many, the articles holding public interest through to the end of the year. Ever mindful of his own PR, Shackleton encouraged the Elephant Island contingent not to tidy themselves up too much, as their beards and bedraggledness helped tell their tale. Their South American hosts responded magnificently to the survivors, and Shackleton's men were fated and fed throughout their travels homeward. Shackleton parted company with his crew in Buenos Aires, as he made preparations to join the Aurora in New Zealand. It was at this point Shackleton told Wordy that the expedition funds wouldn't stretch to paying him back for the coal and other supplies he paid for on their way south, and it may be this that prompted Wordy's post-expedition elevation to chief scientist. Wordy did a good job working up his own extremely limited data and facilitating reports by his fellow scientists. After the entrapment of the Endurance limited their travels and sampling, and then the ship's destruction took what samples they did have in hand to the bottom of the Weddell Sea, there wasn't much to be going on with, some data only surviving the expedition as blubber soot impregnated scraps of paper kept in their pockets. But the scientific contingent wrote up what they could and received some praise for their efforts. Tracy of their work are appended to Shackleton's memoir of the expedition, Seymour Anon. Wordy later received the Royal Geographical Society's back medal for his efforts in the role of post-expedition chief scientist. Hurley headed to London, customs charging him £120 to import the cine films he carried with him. These he handed into the care of the Daily Chronicle and he spent three months on their coin developing the negatives, finding the glass plates in good nick and the Kodak plastic film only slightly deteriorated after its lengthy delay at wildly varying temperatures before processing. Happy with the results, but disappointed to have lost so much material photographed during his time at South Georgia, he sailed south to spend another month recapturing what he could of what he'd lost during the cull at Ocean Camp returning to London with another batch of material for the Daily Chronicle. He made a quick tour of the USA to fulfil his part of the lecturing obligations before returning to the UK and then heading to Ypres to join the Australian war effort. The movie he edited together of the ITAE Waddell Sea experience in the grip of the Polar Pack went into release in 1919 and went a long way to settling the expedition's debts. got to jump back in time here a bit and catch up with the action aboard the Aurora the night it broke free from its hawsers at Cape Evans. The first to notice anything amiss on board was bosun Scotty Patton, who felt the ship was on the move while in his bunk. He ran up the companionways and, once topside, confirmed his fears with the snapped hawsers and the dwindling lights of the Cape Evans hut. The Aurora was travelling northward with the ice. Patton roused Stenhouse, who clocked the situation and began issuing orders that couldn't achieve much. The engine was a long way from operational, and even when reassembled, thawed, preheated, brought up to steam and put it full ahead, the 95 horsepower it pumped out through the screw didn't make much of an impression, as the tens of thousands of tons of sea ice surrounding them continued north. The Aurora experienced much the same treatment in moving sea ice that the Endurance initially did. 
Pressure came and went, threatening to crush the ship. Stenhouse ordered sledges prepared and stores and equipment made ready in case they should have to abandon ship. But the ice only ever tore off the ship's rudder and a blizzard damaged its rigging. So the Ross Sea Maritime component of the ITAE got off relatively lightly. Low on coal, the interior of the Aurora was kept barely above freezing for the ten months that the ship spent trapped in the sea ice. During that time, the pack carried them more than 700 nautical miles from Cape Evans until, in mid-February, the ice flow carrying the Aurora began to experience open ocean swells. While the wave action broke the ice up around the ship, it also ground that same ice against the hull, and all hands tended to the pumps to keep water, allowed in as the corking was squeezed out from the ship's seams by the concertina squeezing action of the ice from sinking the Aurora. Leaking badly and reliant on a jury-rigged rudder and careful application of sails on the two remaining masts to steer them the 2,000 nautical miles of open ocean to New Zealand, Stenhouse did an amazing job to reach safety with all hands. After months of trying to get word to the outside world, Lionel Hook finally got something useful out of the wireless set, reaching a New Zealand coastal station on the 23rd of March. On the 2nd of April, the Otago Harbour steam tug, Plucky, took the Aurora in tow and brought her safe into Port Chalmers. Before the Aurora reached port, John King Davis, then in France, received a telegram from Shackleton's lawyers requesting he lead a mission to seek the endurance in the Weddell Sea. By the time the ship he commanded reached its destination in New York in April, he received another telegram from the Admiralty ordering him to return to London to take command of the Discovery for exactly that mission. Before he could do that, news of the James Caird's voyage and Shackleton's work with the Chilean government to arrange a rescue of the party at Elephant Island reached him and nulled the Admiralty orders. On arrival in Port Chalmers, the Aurora required extensive repairs and the governments of Australia, New Zealand and Britain reluctantly placed £20,000 considerably more than the ship cost the expedition in the first instance, in the care of a committee overseen by Rear Admiral Sir William Cresswell, father of the Royal Australian Navy, and comprising Griffith Taylor, familiar to iced coffee listeners from his time as a geologist under Scott during the BAE Mark III, Professor Orme Masson, colleague of Edgeworth David and founder of the CSIRO, and advisor to Mawson during the preparations for the AAE, and Captain J.B. Stevenson, Australian naval officer and a witness to the Camperdown tragedy mentioned in Ice Coffee episode 28, and Captain J. R. Barter. The committee decided that while much of the crew could stay on, they wouldn't reappoint Stenhouse to command the Aurora, deeming him too little experienced in ice operations, instead seeking out Davis. Davis was commanding a ship in Australian waters when the request that he take command of the Aurora to head south to rescue the Ross Sea Party reached him by radio. Arriving in Port Chalmers, Davis expressed dismay at the state of the vessel he'd selected for Mawson's AAE, condemning Stenhouse's decision to winter the ship at Cape Evans, not realising the decision was forced on Stenhouse by Shackleton's injunction against lying the ship up south of the Erebus Ice Tunnel. 
He oversaw the repairs necessary to get the Aurora making way south once more. On learning of Shackleton's imminent arrival, Davis put the repairs on hiatus and tendered his resignation to Cresswell. Davis sailed with Shackleton on the Nimrod, and while fond of one another, Davis recognised the problems inherent in ships carrying two leaders, and didn't want a bar of any voyage in which such a powerful and charismatic man as Sir Ernest might hold sway to question command decisions. Cresswell and the committee refused to accept the resignation, reaffirming that Davis would hold sole command of the rescue mission. Shackleton bridled at being usurped from command of what he thought of as his ship. During the first meeting between the two former shipmates, the emotionally fraught Shackleton, the stress of the past two years showing on him, in Davis's eyes, as premature ageing, might have exploded at the affront and frustration of the situation, but Davis deftly averted the butting of hard heads that might have occurred by taking a comradely tack. He pointed out that with the expedition deeply in debt and the committee unwilling to cede the Aurora to anyone emotionally invested in the outcome, it served the interests of those at Ross Island best to get the voyage underway as quickly as possible, something any leadership struggle could only postpone. Crestfallen, Shackleton conceded the logic and went aboard as supernumerary, at a salary of one shilling a month for shore operations, when the Aurora left Port Chalmers, present but not recognised as crew in the ship's documentation. Meanwhile, everyone at Cape Evans got down in the mouth about the certain death of Spencer Smith, the likely to the brink of certain deaths of McIntosh and Haywood. There was some brief hope that they'd made it ashore and hunkered down at Cape Royds and the suspected deaths of the Transantarctic Party. Given the state of the depot party when they came off the barrier, everyone thought a group facing that traverse after crossing a thousand miles of the unknown interior of the continent would almost certainly die en route, and the certainty increased with each day the boss and company didn't arrive. Joyce organised forays along the Ross Island shore to search for any sign of Macintosh and Hayward but they found nothing. A stop-in at the hut at Cape Royds yielded some small treasures, matches, some sugar, some soap missed in earlier visits, and a stark contrast with their lives at Cape Evans. Shackleton's former hut seemed sparkly clean by comparison to their home, and the surfaces and chattels lacked the layer of greasy soot that was taking hold of the more subtly residents. Sadly, there was no sign of the missing men. Joyce also took a party south to retrieve geological samples and to erect a cross made by Spencer Smith's cousin, Irvine Gaze, at the Padre's burial mound. On a foray up the slopes of Mount Erebus nearest to Cape Evans, Wilde broke his ankle in a moment of high larks, sliding downhill on a piece of plywood until the improvised sled met with a rock which threw him off. Dick Richards carried his colleague back to the hut, but this proved a breaking point and the young Australian gave out with a cry of despair, falling into a funk from which he didn't soon recover. Richards spent many weeks in the bed in Scott's former alcove, to the immense dismay of Joyce who wrote, No words can express my sorrow. He had been my constant companion for ten months, and a better pal amidst toil and trouble never existed. 
Dr John Cope was well toasty when the depot party returned to Cape Evans, but he rallied as Dick Richards ebbed. Cope, with something to focus on, began taking better care of himself to ensure he was in a position to take care of his patient. Just as Dick Richards was the resident who noticed the aurora was missing, it was the young Australian physicist who also saw the aurora returning. He was out looking to sight seals for an after-breakfast hunting party, his health having improved to the point he could at least climb a rise and propose a fruitful route for the hunters. On the 10th of January 1917, when he first spotted their salvation on the horizon. In a move I think stands the man every bit as high in the cool as fuck rankings as his mettle and courage stand him in the annals of hard as nailsness. He returned to the hut and casually mentioned, There's a ship out there. Believing no ship would venture south for at least another year, his companions thought the youngster was still suffering mental aberrations from his recent collapse, but Richards invited his companions to see for themselves. This they did, and the hut broke into laughter and a rushed sequence of packing and dog harnessing. The seven men sledged out on the sea ice for four miles, at which point they recognised the ship, still another four miles away, as the Aurora, increasing their joy at the thought that their shipmates were not lost to the sea. Joyce spotted men walking across the ice towards them, and among them recognised Shackleton's gate. The boss was alive too, albeit arriving from an unexpected direction. With him came Captain Morton Moyes, one of Frank Wilde's colleagues from the Western Party of the AAE, and Dr Fred Middleton, a physician from Ballarat. Already alert to their location from a letter left in the hut at Cape Royds, Shackleton was eager for news. The deaths weighed heavily on him. Shackleton, Moyes and Middleton transmitted the news back to the ship using a prearranged signal involving lying on the ice in a particular configuration, actions that left the Cape Evans residents momentarily bewildered. Davis wrote of the Ross Sea party rejoining the Aurora. We expected that they would be unkempt, I had not fully appreciated what a profound effect such a long period of isolation could have on their appearance. They were just about the wildest looking gang of men I had ever seen in my life. Smoke bleared eyes looked out from grey haggard faces. Their hair was matted and uncut. Their beards impregnated with soot and grease. Their great physical suffering went deeper than their appearance. Their speech was jerky, at times semi-hysterical almost unintelligible. Their eyes had a strained, harassed look, and no wonder. These events had rendered these hapless individuals as unlike ordinary human beings as any I have ever met. The Antarctic had given them the full treatment. The ship's cook got up a feed for the castaways, but few could stand the primeval fug that filled the wardroom as the seven men partook of the feast. Shackleton led further efforts to find some trace of Mackintosh and Hayward, but, again, turned up no sign of the men. A cross was erected on the shore of Ross Island to the memory of the three dead members of the Ross Sea Party. Davis steered the Aurora North on the 17th of February. Good food 
varied company and, perhaps above all else, access to soap and tobacco, took the edges off the worst of the toastiness, though news of the scale and brutality of the war they expected already long finished added to the Rip Van Winkleness of their reintroduction to the outside world. Davis sent a report to Cresswell's committee via radio on the 4th of February and brought the Aurora back to New Zealand on the 9th of February, 1917. Ernest Joyce went straight into a New Zealand hospital where he spent six months recovering from the effects of snow blindness, his eyes being in a worse state than anyone else's due to the long spells he spent in the lead traces while navigating desperately across the barrier. He spent a further 18 months wearing dark glasses as his eyes slowly healed. His edited diaries, published as The South Polar Trail, are considered an unreliable first-hand source, and I struggle to understand why a man so competent in the field felt the need to gild his story to his advantage as much as historians such as Roland Hunford consider he did. Dick Richards never lost respect or affection for his colleague, and Alexander Stevens wrote him up as the man to drag men back from certain death, which is no small deal. Perhaps I should let things lie with the opinions of the men who spent time in tents and huts with him. Petty Officer Ernie Wilde went minesweeping in the Mediterranean with the Royal Navy, dying of typhus while there. Dr John Lachlan Cope provided medical services to the Royal Navy for the remaining years of the war. Dick Richards returned home, where he spent most of his career at the School of Mines and Industry, Ballarat. He provided war service in helping develop optical equipment for the Australian military services. He lived until 1985, the final surviving member of any heroic era expedition. Ernest Joyce tried to sign on for naval service in 1918, but his Antarctic experiences, which earned him a polar medal with four bars, a record matched only by that of Frank Wilde, had cost his body too dearly and he was refused active service on medical grounds. Shackleton was sent back to South America to assess British propaganda efforts and to advise on how best to further them, but he wanted, and kept after, a naval commission. He was eventually sent to northern Russia in company with Frank Wilde to oversee maritime logistics in those frigid waters. James Wordy served in the artillery as a lieutenant. While working a horse team to manoeuvre a gun into place, a German shell blew him off his mount, which then fell on him, breaking his leg badly enough that he spent the remainder of the war convalescing and unfit for further duty. Timothy McCarthy, the popular and cheerful member of the James Caird voyage, was killed at his gun while on patrol in the English Channel with the Royal Navy. Alf Cheatham, veteran of four Antarctic expeditions and companion to Tom Crean in some of their mutually narrowest squeaks, went down with his Royal Navy ship, torpedoed in the final weeks of hostilities. Dr McIlroy was wounded at Ypres and invalided out of the army. On his return to Wales, Purse Blackborough was unable to sign up for service in the Royal Navy due to the state of his feet. He took to trawler service in company with his father. John Vincent returned to the North Sea trawler fleet, the war only making the work marginally more dangerous than it already was. Tom Crean resumed duties with the Royal Navy 
receiving a promotion to warrant officer and bosun in light of his exemplary service in the South. Greenstreet spent the war as a lieutenant working supply barges up the Tigris through British-occupied Mesopotamia. Hudson, like Charcot, served on a Q-boat during the remainder of the war, trying to combat the threat posed by German U-boats by playing the nerve-wracking ploy of looking like an unarmed merchant ship until the final moment, at which the Q-boat's guns were brought to bear and tried to destroy the submarine before it destroyed the Q-boat. He served as a Commodore in the Second World War, dying when his ship was torpedoed and sunk. Charles Green spent the war as a cook on Royal Navy vessels. He was wounded in 1918 while serving aboard a destroyer. He returned to sea in the Merchant Navy in 1919. Walter Howe served in the Merchant Service through the war and lived to be one of the last surviving members of the Endurance crew, dying in 1972. He made paintings of events during his time in the Weddell Sea, and I think at least one of these served as the dust jacket of a book written by one of his endurance colleagues, though I can't find the copy I wanted to reference, and will follow up on this when I work out why I have that information trapped in my mind grapes. Frank Worsley commanded a P-boat and then a Q-ship, with Joseph Stenhouse as his first officer. Worsley received a Distinguished Service Order for ramming and sinking a U-boat, Stenhouse receiving a Distinguished Service Cross for his role in that same action, and both later served in the Russian Far North, helping train the Russian Northern Army in its intervention against the Bolsheviks, Worsley receiving a bar to his DSO. Scottish marine biologist Robert Clark served on minesweepers in the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve and went on to a career of some note in Scottish fisheries management. Thomas Ord Lees returned to military service and played a role in the development and promotion of parachutes for service air personnel, making many demonstration jumps. Shackleton recommended most members of the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition for the Polar Medal, but refused to give McNeish, Vincent, Holness and Stevenson the nod. There being no ceremony for the award during the war years, news of the snub didn't get out among other members of the expedition for some time. Many, on learning of this snub, thought McNeish, particularly, was poorly treated by this use of the honours system to settle old scores. Macklin writing of the rebuke, I was disheartened to learn that McNeish, Vincent, Holness and Stevenson had been denied the Polar Medal. Of all the men in the party, no one more deserved recognition than the old carpenter. I would regard the withholding of the Polar Medal from McNeish as a grave injustice. I agree. Everyone was in the same boat in terms of the risks they took on Shackleton's behalf and the privations they experienced based on his decisions. Everyone involved in the ITAE deserved the Polar Medal regardless of whether Shackleton thought they'd lived up to his standards or not. That anyone should suffer to the extent the ITAE members did, and not get the same gong as every member of Scott's expeditions got, the same medal that William Spears Bruce tried so hard to get for every member of the SNAE, remains a blot on Shackleton's copybook. McNeish, the ITAE equivalent of the Honey Badger, didn't give a fuck about not getting the Polar Medal but he did hold on to his bitterness over Mrs Chippy's death until his own death in Wellington in 1930. 
He spent the years after the expedition in the Merchant Navy until moving to New Zealand, leaving his wife and his carpenter's tools behind in 1925. He spent his time in Wellington working for the Harbour Board until an injury left him out of a job and destitute but for the collections made on his behalf by colleagues with a soft spot for an old man with a chip on his shoulder about a leader who killed his cat, which came up as a topic for conversation at every opportunity. He spent his final days in O'Hero Benevolent Home. While he was buried with full military honours, his grave remained unmarked for many years. He received a headstone in 1959 and a bronze likeness of Mrs Chippy was cast and placed on his grave in 2004. William Bakewell stayed on in Argentina to manage a sheep farm before joining the British Merchant Navy. He survived being torpedoed twice. He missed the first issue of ITAE Polar Medals, but a special edition was cast for him in 1964 and awarded at a reunion celebrating the 50th anniversary of the sailing of the Endurance. The Aurora sold for £10,000 to help settle some of Shackleton's debts. It was sunk in June 1917, somewhere off the Australian east coast, after leaving Newcastle with a load of coal. Conjecture favours an attack by the German raider, Wolf, but German mines were also in use in Australian waters at the time, and the ship was old and pretty badly beaten up, and may have simply succumbed to the sea, as ships did and still do. All hands were lost, including the boatswain, Scotty Patton, who raised the alarm when the Aurora broke away from her moorings at Cape Evans. Lloyds posted the ship missing in January 1918. Flotsam, positively identified as coming from the Aurora, was found off the coast near Brisbane. Where Shackleton felt a failure, other explorers and the British public saw his example as holding its own merit. The war changed the public definition of heroism though, and a live, albeit battered, battler didn't garner the sort of hero worship that Scott's martyr's essence received in the pre-war years. Shackleton's lectures didn't enjoy the large audiences his presentations about his previous homecomings did. Refusing to accept payment for lectures during the war years, Shackleton didn't even manage to cash in on those seats he did fill. Leonard Tripp insisted that his friend get the key elements of a written account of the voyage written down before heading off for active duty in the war. Shackleton again employed New Zealand journalist Edward Saunders to improve the prose of his expedition memoir, and the two worked closely while Shackleton was in New Zealand, Shackleton dictating his remembered experiences, often bringing himself to tears with the recounting of the still raw memories, and Saunders polishing the text into what we now know as South. The book, released in 1919, sold well, but with the copyright already assigned to the expedition creditors, this also didn't help Shackleton financially. Sir Vivian Fuchs, leader of the first successful transantarctic crossing, was later asked to speculate on the chances of Shackleton's efforts. Using a detailed plan of the expedition provided by his mentor, Sir James Wordy, Fuchs came to the conclusion that without the technological developments that aided his own project, there was little chance of the sledging party from the Endurance making it to the Ross Sea. Perhaps, using supporting sledge groups to act as depot relays, 
A final party may have made it through to the base of the Beardmore after a thousand miles of slogging, but Fuchs thought it unlikely. While it put the lives of its crew in peril for a sustained period, that the Endurance sank where it did, when it did, prevented the sledges setting out and possibly more deaths than the three that the ITAE cost. Several subsequent attempts to recreate the voyage of the James Caird failed, usually when the Southern Ocean broke the replica boat sufficient to warrant calling in support craft. But in 2000, contrary to a comment I made last episode, German explorer Arved Fuchs navigated a replica, the James Caird II, from Elephant Island to South Georgia. The First World War, having curtailed all Antarctic exploration other than the ITAE, placed renewed pressure on southern whale populations. Kerosene and then gaslighting had made whale oil redundant as a light source, and plastics were rapidly replacing baleen in all its various uses. Corsetry, already in decline through the rise of the Brassiere and the Girdle, took another hit during the First World War, with the US government asking women to stop buying the garments shortly after joining the conflict, thus freeing up steel for the shipbuilding industry. While baleen was no longer much used in the garments, I think it's amazing to recount that even in 1917, this bizarre fashion was still so popular that the Ship Steel Initiative yielded 28,000 tonnes of metal that otherwise would have gone into undergarments. Two warships worth. No wonder whales got such a caning when their mouthparts went into moulding the curves the Victorian era was so eager to cover up. I don't understand fashion. It's a prerequisite in my field that you be scruffy and poorly colour coordinated, or so I like to tell my mum. But I don't understand that anyone could understand corsetry. Anyway, with whales off the hook for lighting and bending women's bodies to male ideals, the explosives industry took the next swipe at the whale population, saponified glycerin being an essential ingredient in nitroglycerin, the explosive first made by Italian chemist Ascanio Sobrero, and later made safe er, to handle through its combination with diatomaceous earth by Alfred Nobel. The war put such demand on glycerin supplies that the whales in the southern ocean became more valuable and therefore more hunted than ever before. Without the glycerin supplied by British and Norwegian interests operating south of the Atlantic Ocean, the war of attrition in Europe would have played out very differently. They also serve that give up the blubber for the industrial processes by which people seek to vaporise other people. The ITAE didn't make Shackleton famous or rich in his day, but his legacy has come to outshine Scots. Even in my lifetime, the name recognition of the Shackleton brand has increased many times over. In my childhood, few people I knew knew of the Avro Shackleton anti-submarine maritime patrol aircraft, let alone who it was named after. But now it seems everyone knows about and respects Sir Ernest. No wave of literature criticising his decisions or person equivalent to that which kicked off in the 1970s for Scott has dented Shackleton's reputation for tenacity and steady nerves in a pinch, and the number of books, documentaries, reenactments, and leadership courses celebrating Shackleton's finest hour are yet to show signs of nearing an asymptote. The acclaim he sought is his now, in spades. 
and it's only his being dead prevents him from enjoying his present notoriety and praise. South has been in the public domain for some time, but given the number of people in the present day making a living giving motivational speeches that focus on Shackleton's leadership, he could probably finally cash in on his reputation in a manner his previous projects never allowed, if he was alive. While I do hold his flaws in mind as I read, write and speak about him, I don't begrudge Shackleton the adulation he receives posthumously. No matter what you think of the clockwork that wound him up and set him on his path, no matter what you think of the way he treated Emily, no matter how much you partial out the woes of the Ross Sea Party to his shoulders, he was the man to look to in a tight corner. That his reputation has enjoyed longer legs than those of Nordenhold, Bruce and Charcot is mostly a result of Shackleton being better at PR than most of his contemporaries. That he is held in high regard above high achievers such as Bird is mostly a matter of their exposure as liars, their achievements empty boasting. That he is dear to the hearts of the British is likely a result of their historical pattern for their loving a plucky runner-up, though perhaps another dead one might not have fit the mould of the national mood in the aftermath of the First World War. Other leaders have faced down imposing odds and come through shining. The ones that die in the effort usually don't get to tell their story, and no one knows what happened, the sea surface being a particularly poor substrate for archaeological examination of past events. Shackleton was the man to fit the need of those marooned in the Weddell Sea, and even if he didn't get the adulation and funds he wanted, he spent 20 years following his ambitions like few people before or since, and that counts as time well spent in my book. The fact is, he girded his loins with sufficient quantities of high-grade girding liniment and kept his eye firmly on the prize, such that he succeeded in spite of the numerous narrow gates his luck had to pass through, and his determination warrants praise, even if his underlying motives, practices and decisions can be questioned after the fact. The fog of war is a pertinent factor to keep in mind in discussing the past. Much as I've dissected some of his decisions with hindsight and hindsight bias, he made each decision with the weight of responsibility resting solely on his shoulders and every indication he consistently acted in good faith attempts to buttress the comfort of his crew and ensure their survival. I realise I owe some of you some music. I'm late but running fast to catch up. Recording's taken a lot more time and energy than I expected but it's turning out a lot better than I expected too. I hope to get the album to you soon. I've mentioned Nicholas Johnson and his output a couple of times in the series. Six years after his suicide and five years after his website went offline, a correspondent alerted me to its reappearance. Big Dead Place is online once more, and while a lot of the links currently lead to 404 notices, I'm pleased to see Nick's work represented in the form I first encountered it once again. Reconnoitering the internet for clues about this echo from my past, I found a radio documentary about Nick was released by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation on the 30th of April. Produced by Fiona Pepper, it gives Nicholas Johnson and his output some much warranted attention, and you should go look it up right now. I'll provide links at the thing with thing, but really, if you can't work this sort of thing out without links, I doubt links will help. Saying thanks to Riss and Bethany this episode for listening.
Take care and appreciate your coffee.